0: Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm speaking in Vox Media headquarters in New York City, the former Goldman Sachs headquarters. Chuck Klosterman is the first person I've told that to who actually went, what?! So, I'm glad he's here.
2: Hi, Chuck. Good to be here. Um, thanks for coming in person. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. You told me that the last one we did was over the phone, and I had forgotten that. I had forgotten it so much. I thought I knew what you looked like in my mind. Like, I had an, an image in my mind. I'll be like, oh, well, I'll recognize him again. How do I I've look? never met you.
1: I look like a generic media guy, right?
2: Well, that's uh, an interesting self-description. Yeah. But, uh... I don't. You. You. I did imagine you different in my mind. I think I <laughs> thought that you looked like that guy. Is his name Derek Thompson? Yeah, that's who I thought you looked like.
1: Oh, Derek's much better looking, <laughs> and like really skinny. He's good. He's good. Some people say that they. Uh, you have a very specific conception of you Over listening to this, which is. Always interesting. That's what happens to Terry Gross, so that means you're obviously succeeding. Someone's listening. Um, Speaking of—it's great that you'd forgotten this uh, last podcast, but I went back and looked at the transcript of our chat, and Mm -hmm. I realized that two years ago we were talking—it was just after Charlottesville, where Trump had said there are good people on both sides, Mm -hmm. and we talked about Mm -hmm. that— and now here we are, and Trump has told four congresswomen to go back to their own countries. And once again, it seems like this is an, an astonishing thing, and he's crossed a line that could never have been crossed, and he's done it. And I remember it sh- when Charlottesville happened, I thought, well, this is another ephemeral thing. And it kind of was, but it kind of has stuck. I don't know if you're following this one, if you think this one is going to or stick, or if this is just
2: another— Well— You know, this is an incredibly odd thing to say, but this is one situation where you have to hope that Trump is just dumb and racist. Because if it's conscious, that means what they're doing is something incredibly savvy, which is trying to uh, plant this idea in the collective consciousness – that these four people are what the Democratic Party is now, in the same way that the left has fairly effectively uh, kind of created the situation where, if you uh, support Trump or a Republican in any way, you are a Trump-like figure. Yeah, you know. So if you're somebody in you know Omaha, Nebraska, and you just have always voted Republican, now there's this sense like, well, you're one of these kind of people now. I don't think that Trump is being that savvy, but if he is, it is an interesting idea to to make people feel as though if you're somebody who's just, for lack of a better term, a conventional traditional Democrat, that you must sort of align with these people. I mean, it would be such a, a, a straightforward, conscious attempt to polarize things further that— if it was a strategy, it would be discomforting. So you almost have to hope he's just kind of talking like a dumb individual thinking. the eternal Trump question,
1: dumb or malevolent.
2: Well, exactly. But even most of the time, it would be hard. You, you know, he, he does, when he does things, it's hard to look at that and be like, well— um, you know what is the you know the, the larger uh, conception here outside of appealing to uh, a person with kind of retrograde views this is something where if the conversation continues to dwell on these four individuals it will start to seem as though this is what a democrat looks like and it, it is a a little more sophisticated if <laughs> there is any intentionality at all which there may be none I mean <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and um and by the way the Republicans having to stand with Trump right that is now one of the stories right none of the Republicans mm. have come out and criticized him that like they've come one congressman is like well this mm. is not good yeah you really resist the idea of like, binary, you got to be in one bucket or another. It's sort of a common thing. I think when I listen to you talk and-
2: I just, it would be, wouldn't it be odd to embrace it? Why would you, why would anybody consciously say that I like the idea of every idea being bifurcated in a sense that you have to have one side? I don't know why, I don't see how that would be good. I understand why that happens. And there's a process kind of in just- political science that prompts that to happen. But, uh, I mean, I, I hope I resist it, I, in, at least in my own mind. Yeah, I hear you. I feel like there's something specific about the times we're in that it makes, it
1: makes it very hard to sort of waver in the middle. Or even if you want to waver in the middle, you do have to make a well, decision. Well,
2: there's, there's a difference between wavering and the not middle— not making a decision is a decision. There's a difference between wavering in the middle of those two ideas and saying that I can find a space— that is not exactly on the edge of those ideas. You know, I'm not saying that somebody should be like, well, you know, this guy is saying racist things. This guy is not... I guess they're both interesting. That's not what I'm saying. It just seems as though within um, any sort of ideology that there's going to be different tiers of meaning. And it seems odd to say that it is important to be on the right or to be on the left that I position myself on the farthest edge of that. And if I don't, Someone farther than me, someone who's a little more radical than me, is going to accuse me of actually having ideas that are not that distance from the enemy. That, like, if I am not as far as person A, then I am actually with person Z. And I just think that is crazy, and I just – I don't I, – I, it's it's odd how often I find myself having conversations about it because this is one of the rare times where I feel like I'm the person saying the obvious thing and someone else is saying something that's like – I don't know. That's like a thought experiment, right? That can't be true because for most of my life, it's the opposite where I'm saying sort of the, the, the thought experiment or the ridiculous concept, and someone's like, that's just not practical. That's – you know. It's it's weird to me. How much of this is actually because you're having a real conversation versus
1: being online? Like you, you have a Twitter account. You use it reluctantly. You're reluctantly promoting your book That's tour. what I –
2: yeah, I use it like a – I don't use it for anything yeah. besides that. But you
1: consume stuff, right? So you get, I look so you, at it all the time. You get a sense of what the culture is like in that way versus when you're actually talking to someone in person. It's a different yeah, conversation.
2: But what has happened though is while – I mean you probably know the figure – Exactly. Like, what percentage of people are on Twitter? Is it 11%, 12%? I think it's 20 max, but yeah. 20%, but that's counting all of the bots and all the things, right? Uh, However, what percentage of people in the media would you say are on Twitter? 100%. Exactly. So, the people in the media sort of see Twitter as the world, and it really does now infiltrate every aspect of coverage. Um, The influence of Twitter... Uh, there's, a, there's always this kind of immediate reaction to go like, oh, it's just it's just kind of the, the the wackiest people, the loudest people. But because the people who are supposed to be, you know, the objective viewer of the world, they're involved too. And I think the impact is probably greater than we think. And in fact, it certainly seems that way. Like when you watch the debates or whatever, it seemed odd to me how often they were talking about things that. I bet for a lot of the people at home we're like, I don't know, that's, that hasn't really ever come up in my life, but here it What is, we're sort I, of ping-bonging away. I uh, had that with the, the away.
1: Kamala Harris, Joe Biden thing, where mm-hmm. she came out and she had that very uh, profound statement mm-hmm. about busing and everyone said this is a big moment for her and a lot of, and, and the discussion immediately was was how powerful this was and it has been true, right? It has, has helped her, but I thought, She's talking about busing, and I, you know, I was a reasonably okay history student, and I barely know about busing. And I'm pretty sure most people under 40 have no idea. What, it seems like a very esoteric argument to have. It is. I mean, and it's a generally just like, she's for civil rights. That's good. W- but, you know, the, the early
2: debates are always kind of for the wonkiest
1: people. Yeah, you but know, it was described as like, this, is, is, a mem- this, this yeah. is a momentous yeah. moment. And I thought, well, if you're not in a very narrow slice of like politics slash
2: Twitter consumption, this shouldn't mean much to you. I mean, maybe in the specific, it doesn't. Maybe in the abstract, it does because it tells people, it's like, okay, this is where her concerns lie. Yeah. And even if these specific concerns don't have a direct application to me, I am interested in somebody who has these kind of concerns. Now, I mean, the debate was good for her. It should be. I mean, she uh, is a, you know, a, a prosecutor. This is her strength. So if she's not going to succeed in these debates, there's no other kind of uh, avenue for her. It will be interesting now to to see when the debates happen again if that awareness is really built into the other candidates, yeah. and they decide like, well, okay, if this is her strength, we need to sort of go after her in the same way that they kind of went after Biden, and of course, Beto O'Rourke, who is the one person you can just sort of criticize for no reason. It's like he just, he's, he's he is the the easiest person to sort of target. Like the Blasio went after him immediately the first chance he had. I'm not I'm not a huge Beto O'Rourke fan, but I do I feel a degree of sympathy for the guy because he is There's just He he just has to take it. He just has to sit there and take it. I think after you pose
1: on the Vanity Fair cover saying I was born for this, then you get – Sure, although that quote
2: was – that portion of the quote was only part of it. And if you read the full quote, it doesn't seem as bad. I think what uh, has happened in a way is he seems to be in the old way things used to be the most conventional kind of person who runs for office. And the biggest thing that it's, it's seemingly what voters want is not that. Whatever whatever used to be the way it was, we don't want that anymore. Um, so he's you know and, and there's nothing you can do. He has no response to any of his criticisms uh he, there, there's no way he can somehow triangulate it to say that they're actually arguing yep. some different point, you know it's like uh, I was I was just
1: thinking um you talking about Twitter shaping reality, right the the Harris thing is a. Because she was anointed by people talking on TV and people talking on Twitter, and that's all one ecosystem now, then it became a reality, right? She has she succeeded in that debate because people said she did. And then, then it happened, mm-hmm. which is a different thing. Should we make a hard pivot and talk about your book for a second? I would, I would appreciate that. That's why that. you're here? <laughs> it's called Raised in Captivity. <laughs> Fictional nonfiction is the great subhead. Do you want to describe what it is?
2: Well, it is a collection of 34 short stories. It is not, I would say, uh, similar. If you're the kind of person listening to this podcast and you know nothing of me, but you're like, oh, I I love Laurie Moore and I love George Saunders, I don't really think it's that (laughs) because the stories are written as if they are nonfiction, and a lot of the things that... Are typically part of short stories are not really part of this. I mean, the characters are super short. Yeah, they're very short. I've told this a bunch of times, and I but it's true. The initial conception of this book, the idea I had, was that I was going to write a hundred short stories that were exactly a thousand words long. It's a very Chuck Klosterman idea. (laughs) Well, I'm Chuck Klosterman, (laughs) so then I start doing it, and I'm like, ah, it's like all these stories are either getting extended to a thousand or cut down to a thousand, and then of course it's going to get edited and copy edited, so I'm going to have to go in and refix all these. And then, of course, the idea is idiotic. Nobody cares the length of a story. No one's ever going to buy something because the stories are exactly the same size. And I was like, I'll just have them be the natural length. So then I wrote, like, 50 stories, basically a story a week for 50 weeks, and then 34 of them became this book. But they're written the way I like stories to be, which is the way nonfiction is written. So I think that somebody, like... uh, Reading this, it will feel more like the experience of reading nonfiction, even though these scenarios are impossible or absurd or, you know, kind of Twilight zone or whatever.
1: It feels very much like Chuck Klosterman. So if you like Chuck, you'll like Mm -hmm. this. It feels like a lot of it are sort of the riffs that are sort of contained in your magazine stories and some of the other nonfiction you do. Like you would do an aside, and like a good chunk of that might be half of one of these short stories. Or or they're based around a provocative idea, like— What if a football coach only instituted one very weird specific play? What would actually happen? Mm -hmm. Um, Which
2: is a very sort of Chuck idea, I think. I like it. How is it getting received? I mean, thus far, the reviews have seemed better than my books usually get, you know? But that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, I've had books that were reviewed poorly who sold very well. I've had books that were reviewed pretty well and did pretty well. I've had books that were reviewed well and tanked. I've had books that were reviewed poorly and tanked. There's no relationship between the media response to something and how well a book does because the only thing that really sells a book are people reading it and telling people in their life, you should read this, I think you'd like it, or I'm gonna buy this for my brother for Christmas. So, of course, it's nice to get, a good review. Of course, it's kind of a bummer to get a bad one. You know, you think about these things, you know, you—I you, you, remember every review that's ever been written about me. I bet. And yet at the same time, it doesn't have much of a real-world application. Like, I would not be shocked if this book did nothing. Like, if it came out and didn't sell 5,000 copies, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I would be unhappy— I hope it just does because well. of the randomness of book selling. Yeah, and it's just so hard to sell books now, and um, you just never know. I mean, it's obviously my nonfiction sells better than my fiction. If I was just in this to sell books, I would only write essays, probably. That would be the best, smartest thing I could do. Yeah, you know? um, about famous it, people. About famous people, or just actually the way I've more like the stuff I did in Cocoa Puffs, just like do stuff like that, like just say like, oh, here's this thing no one thinks about, but here's what I think about it, and here's what it actually means. Blah blah, you know. I'm sure that would be uh, like my publisher would love it if I did that, you know. Uh, But you, but you know, you can only do what you're compelled to do. It seems dumb to say that, but it's true. I I can only do the things that I'm driven to do, and I was driven to do this. And I will say, and and I know this seems like the thing people say when they're promoting a book, but it is true. This is the most fun I had writing a book since Fargo Rock City. Absolutely. Why do you think that is? (sighs) I don't know. I'm not sure why. Part of it may have been that...
1: So you're really knocking these out one a week. That must have a satisfaction, right? I did. it. Yeah, thing. I like.
2: I guess it was. It felt sort of journalistic in the way I was doing it because I had a very systematic approach to writing them. But also, I feel like I liked it. Like I, I liked them so often. I write something, and as I'm typing it. I love it, and then I read it the next day, it doesn't seem quite as good, and by the time it's in the book, I hate it, and I'm embarrassed by it, and then five years later, I feel okay about it, but I wish I could have written it better. But this was one time where it actually felt like I was enjoying doing it, and I also wonder if maybe I've come all the way around. You know, you start writing... Just because you want to write, you have no idea if you will get published, and then you start getting published and your books come out and you start letting other people decide how you feel about things. Like how the book sells or how it's received becomes part of the way you think about it. And maybe I've came all the way around, maybe not 360 degrees, but maybe like 340 degrees, and I'm almost back the beginning of just enjoying doing this because my life is so different
1: it's like when the beatles go back and start doing like well, you're not the beatles but but but, <laughs> but you know inevitably the, the artist
2: bad finger man like bad, cool. but they, they go back and we're done with the baroque stuff now we're going back to basics and we're gonna well, play oh yes the that's or, like that's that's advancement theory when you decide you can get back to the, like, the blues or whatever um i it, it more it more has to do with the fact that and this is a, a very cliche thing to say but i bet you will agree with it Having children changes how important what you do for a living seems, and that and doesn't mean that the work gets worse, which is I would have thought. Like, I would have heard that when I didn't have kids. If someone would have said that, I was like, oh, so you don't care as much. It's not that you care less. Um, it's that the meaning is different, and it doesn't seem to me anymore like <sighs> anything about my identity – is tied to what other people think of my writing. Like, my identity is still tied to writing and being a writer, but I live in an insular world now. Like, there are a lot of days where I talk to my wife, my kids, my kid's teacher, maybe somebody who's the waitress at a diner, and that's it.
1: Right, I know that feeling. I don't have the zen, like, enlightenment that I've put things in perspective. A lot of it's just like, my time is different, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, even if you're doing a crappy job of being a parent— they still take a lot of time, the kids. And so you just have less time to do the work and think about the work and and perseverate about it. And less
2: time to think about your own life. Right. I mean, everybody thinks about their life. Some, being a writer, you almost have to. But it is different. And, you know, it's like if I had to choose between this book being super commercially successful and well-received or having a guarantee that my son's transition to kindergarten this year will go perfectly. I would absolutely take the second one. There's no question in my mind. It would be the easiest decision in the world. Like, I think—and the thing is, it's not like I have a troubled son. The transition will probably happen great anyways. It will. But— it matters—that matters so much more to me in a way that I'm almost embarrassed to admit. I don't know why it embarrasses me, but it does. Like, I'm embarrassed by how much I love my kids. I feel dumb about it. I feel dumb saying it somehow because it's such a—it's the kind of thing that I'd always heard other people say, and I thought to myself, oh, that's just what you got to say because it's like if you don't say it, what do you—you you know, you got you. Know? but it is true. It's like all the profound— Things are real. But you also are in a peer group with people who all believe that, right?
1: Whereas before you were in a peer group of people who were all at projects like books or magazine articles Well, I was whatever. the
2: last of my friends to have kids for the most part. So I saw this transition happen where, you know, it, it's – you know, and you're so short-sighted. It's like, ah, why doesn't John go out anymore? It doesn't matter. Like, why not? Like, yeah. why is he always wanting to go home? I know like, you a you kid, know, but come yes, on. Yeah, like he still likes to party. But it's like, why would he? And then, but then you figure it out that it is different, you know. And and I'm a little hesitant to say that because I know everyone listening to this who doesn't have kids is having the reaction I would have had, which is i do not going to listen to this guy anymore, you know. And, you know, maybe I, I, get, I get it. I just got to you tell the truth. I mean, that's how it seems to me. All right. Old people with kids, since you're still listening, keep
1: listening. We're going to take a quick break. Be right back with Chuck.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, The Future of Work Welcome back, old people with children, to my discussion with Chuck Close to my Well, you know, audiobook. young
2: people have children too. Have you, have you not seen the MTV show 16 and Pregnant yeah, or whatever, 14 but and Pregnant? The young people I work with don't have. Oh. <laughs> and it, it's all young people. Yeah, I'm, I'm it's that girl in there, there with like really bright red pink hair, like the Raggedy Ann hair. I was like, this is the modern world.
1: Yeah, it took me a long
2: time to realize that I was way
1: older than people I was working with. It went on for many years and and finally sort of sunk in. For a while, I'm like, well, I'm not going to the bars with them. That's different, but I'm still roughly in the same team. I'm like, no, I'm literally twice as old as a lot of people I work with.
2: Yeah, it it, it is odd how—and I I think this is probably a a technological thing—how the culture is now accelerating at differing speeds— Like, the likelihood of a young person being familiar with music that was released 25 years ago is actually so much higher than it was when I was young. And yet, the difference between me at 47 and someone at 27 seems greater than it was when I was 27. That part is really hard for me to get my head around. But I I did—I
1: made made some stupid reference to the future being so bright I had to wear shades in some conference call. And someone said, ah— wasn't that like a poem or something? I was like, no, it's a stupid <laughs> well, song. It was, you know, a, like, stu- but was like a, a poem. But like, like, Why? But yeah, you shouldn't know that. It was a dumb song. Like you not knowing it doesn't mean you're missing out on a great part of pop history. It's okay. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you about that, about, about growing older, writing about pop culture. That's still, I think, your main—I mean, you write books, but mm. you're still sort of thinking about pop culture. You're consuming it. But the older you get, the more removed you are from the people who are making it, the sort of main intended audience that's supposed to receive that stuff. And how you think about, like, do you exert yourself trying to, like, keep up and understand what TikTok is? Or do you not care? Or do you feel
2: conflicted about it? You know, I never went through a period where I thought to myself— I need to be into this because other people are into it, which I think was the assumption, particularly like, oh, say, 2003. So I'm at Spin, I'm writing a column for Esquire, I'm writing a column for ESPN with the idea that I'm going to write about sports kind of outside of itself. I think there was an assumption that that I must just be trying to absorb all of culture and, and contextualize it and kind of put it back out. But I've always just sort of written and thought about the things that I consume naturally. So it doesn't feel that much different to me. Maybe to an outsider it does. I'm sure there would be a lot of young people who would think of me as – almost like an elderly person uh-huh. or like or like so detached from the c- culture that they live in, you know. Uh, like in the mid-90s, uh, well, you're well, writing
1: about KISS, right? And it, KISS was not current. But, yeah, but anyone, exactly. re- but, a, but, but people your age knew what KISS was and they had a sense of it and they had a vague sense of sort of where it came from and now it would be
2: ancient. Uh, but, but I mean, but here's the thing, though. Like I work in the idiom of books, I don't need to be like Beyonce or Adele and have a, two million people like my work. If fifty thousand people like this book in hardcover, it will be perceived as a massive success. So I don't have to think to myself, "It's like, can I?" You know, um, you know. It's, if I, I got to, I put Billie Eilish in the show. Should I like jam these things in. I don't think that way. Yeah. It just it doesn't. It doesn't seem as though uh, that would help. I think if anything, it would make it seem fake to people who are young, and confusing to people who aren't. So I, I. I but I you mean, also know who Billie Eilish is. I mean, granted, she's on the cover of the New York Times. Sure, but yeah, I mean, I I'm sure I'm sure I'm into pop music more than most forty seven year old people. But that doesn't mean I'm into it. You know what I'm saying? Like the fact that I know I know more about it than the average person like me. I mean, the average person like me. Hasn't bought a record since the second Oasis album or whatever. probably or yeah. whatever. you know, it's just you know that's just how it is. But I don't give myself like I'm not. I don't feel like I'm kind of plugged in. And plus, you can. It's so easy now to be fake plugged in. Like you can really. De- y- you don't I, need. A, you can just say yeah, TikTok. Yes, exactly. Or just go on to Spotify and go on whatever the singles are and see what the singles people are listening to, and then act as though somehow your organic nature. Pushed you there. And there is a lot of that now. I mean, there's a lot, I see a lot of culture coverage where it seems like because everything is so splintered and so niche, kind of niche based, that somebody thinks to themselves, well, if I want to be relevant, I got to find whatever it is that's getting some share of the marketplace, right? So what's the biggest thing? Okay. And then I'm going to pretend like I love I it. I definitely am the age now where I could be duped by someone who wanted to say,
1: this is the number one hit song. And I would go, okay. And it would sound like Migos. Mm-hmm. And a couple, I did a thing with, with Derek Thompson here at mm-hmm. this podcast once where I played him. I asked him to like name the most mm-hmm. popular thing in multiple genres. And he did really well up until pop music and I had no idea. I'd never heard of Migos. And now we would all nod. But you could t- play something that sounded like Migos that was like an SNL sketch. And I would go, oh. And I wouldn't know it was a fake. But band. you
2: know that I, I I now have sympathy for, or not maybe not sympathy. I have some kind of empathy or or I sh- my mind is sh- shared now with the people who had been rock critics for a long time, yep. and then Fugger Rock City came out, and they were like, this fucking guy is talking about. Kicks and Faster Pussycat, like they're Joni Mitchell. It's like, what, what does he, you know, I'm sure, you know, it was like, they were like, that music is so interchangeable. Like, I can't tell the difference between Shout at the Devil and Pyromania. They seem the same to me. Yep. It's like, how can you, know, that's just how it always is, right? It's just that now the differences are, um, they have this secondary meaning because now everything is politics. Everything. I do feel yeah, like yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm now old yeah. enough that I'm getting some of this filter
1: back from my kids who are consuming culture. In a, so I've got a sense of what they're watching, and I know they're not exact replicas of, of standard 9 and 11-year-old kids, but they're on YouTube, they're on Fortnite, they they say they like to consume memes, which mm. is a weird
2: thing to mm. hear a little person say. It is, because that was when I got into this Thing. This is like Douglas Rushkoff talked about yeah. that. It was like academic language. Or yeah, whatever. for them it just means a funny picture. What I found very fascinating, I, think, I don't know if my wife told me this or if I read this, that somewhere someone was saying that the idea of tapping into nostalgia now specifically means tapping in to the late 90s simply because it is pre-social media. So, like, that show, like, Pen15, that was Mm -hmm. a really good, it was great show. Um, Which I haven't seen, but I'm nodding. But uh, (laughs) there's an episode where one of the characters is, like, downloading on AOL and, you know, the way the dialogues were and all those sounds and stuff like that. That is what people are now nostalgic for. Stranger things. Slow internet connections. Yes, you know. Um, But it's really tied to this idea that we have this cultural break now, this generational break with technology, which I think is more meaningful than any generation gap.
1: I've always thought that and then think well no one seems to be very interested in having a discussion in part but
2: I think we're that we're that gen, we're that cusp generation, right? Oh, I mean one thing that I just feel so lucky about is that when I got into journalism There was no internet, basically, and when I leave, there'll be nothing but. I mean, when I started at the newspaper in Fargo in 1994, me and a few of the other young reporters were like, can we get the internet in the office? And it's not just that they said no. The older reporters and the editors thought we were stupid. Like, what kind of frivolous thing? They're like, read the AP wire. So that's what you would do. You'd read the AP wire. And the library was across the street. So we'd go over and check email in the library and come back. It's hard to think how like this isn't a unique experience because we're the same age, but like we're going to be the only age that really had that. We were. I started started a fact
1: checker at Forbes, and if you wanted to use the internet, you went down to the in-house library. Mm -hmm. And but most of what the librarians do, they would go through newspapers and cut out clips for you. Mm -hmm. And then one day, we all got computers and the internet, but it came with this giant contract. Of all the things that we couldn't do with the internet, it was a
2: ridiculous thing. It was huh.
1: because it was this crazy new technology. What will the, what do? And that we do was with that,
2: it? that was before Google, so it was like AltaVista and shit. Yeah, had yeah, that. It was yeah, ninety-seven, ninety-eight. It's so crazy to think about that. Like you know, it, and it's just, but was it crazier than it was? Like my dad, you should talk about. Like he remembers the first time he saw television and what it was like. And like, was that even wilder? Because that is. A huge jump. I mean, like, when my dad would talk about television, he would always say, like, you know, it's incredible. I can see these political conventions. I can see the Rose Bowl. I can see, like, like he, he only saw it as this, like, a portal into places he wasn't at. But, of course, I never thought of television that way. Television to me was normative. I there's have no memory. I have no memory without it um, Right whenever so, uh, you see like a history of communication
1: mm-hmm. It's the telegraph and the telephone mm-hmm. and radio and, and now yeah. the internet It just seems like the yes. standard progression, but it seems pretty mammoth when you're actually in it.
2: Oh, it is I mean, it's just it's it's the world was one way and now two years later It's different and that's how it is with all of these things is yeah. you writing books a reaction to that or just something? You always aspired to do Oh, I don't think it's a reaction to it at all. I mean, like, as opposed to what? As like,
1: opposed to being someone who's consi- – if, like, if you were writing more magazine pieces, I would assume there'd be more like, hey, Chuck, could you write about this thing? It's doing well. It's popular. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I did that – you know, I've, I've, celebrity profiling, you know, it's like it, – it, it seems to me like there's always temporarily one person who's the person. You know, and, uh, like, there was different, you know, like, like, Josh Ells was that way and Alex Papademus was that way. And now Taffy, yep. uh, uh, you know, it's like uh, – very broad. Like uh, I can't yeah, pronounce her last name. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's why I'm pretending I don't She's know great. it. I'm actually – Mispronounce and she has the great American yes. novel that really is yes. the great American novel. You know, it's like there's this, always this thing where there'll be a period where like someone is the person who is like, "This is the best person." Like Chris Heath was that in the '90s and stuff. And you know, I I was probably very very briefly like that for a little bit where it would be like, "Oh, you know." But uh, it's rare to see somebody who's like, "I'm going to do this forever," because it, it, there is a formula is a weird word. It's it's because it's not that there's a formula necessarily. It's different than other kinds of writing. It's just the experience. At some point, when you've
1: done a several of them, yeah, you know how to do them.
2: Yeah, and and it it you start seeing the parts of it that don't feel like journalism at all because when you when I started doing that I only I saw it the same way I saw it covering a spot news story for the Akron Beacon Journal same way which is like I have more space now and it's more fun and then at some point it's like it almost feels like I'm working in advertising now and I mean particularly when you get up to like when it was like Taylor Swift and stuff like that it seemed different to me like because there's multiple layers of people mediating it and well it's not that there's been so many people mediating the experience. It just has to do with like you get you reach this clarity of why this exists at all, and why people want those stories and all of these things, which it feels odd and and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'd still do that. There's certain people if I I would still do that for. I mean, if, you know, if if I w- I will always do a profile on somebody I'm authentically. Fascinated by if it fits into my life or whatever, but it seems like a temporary condition. I mean, one of the reasons I like your book is
1: there are lots of those asides in the stories. They're about one idea, but you slip in some stuff that mm-hmm. seems like, again, would, like there's a, a piece there about a serial killer. Mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil it, but there, as an aside, there's a discussion between a cop and a reporter. Mm-hmm. And then the, you're making these references to basically how media works yeah. in just this little aside. So, yeah. if you, again, if you like Chuck.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You'll like this book.
1: It is, it is experimental. Is that, is that a fair word to describe it?
2: Mm, I mean, I don't know. You don't like I, that word? Well, no. It's not that I don't like it. I feel that when, when somebody says something experimental that usually suggests to the person consuming it, it's like they're going to have to deal with the – the, the oddness and in the construction as much as the content. Yeah. I don't think that is the case with this. I don't know. I mean, there's one story in there where I guess it's like a, uh, supposed to seem like pages ripped out of a YA sports anthology written 40 years uh-huh. from now or whatever. If that's a little experimental, but I didn't.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think here's, that- here's
2: a better way of saying it. I feel like when someone is doing experimental work, they are. Doing something that has not, as far as they can tell, has not been done before. And I don't know if I would say that about this.
1: You're right, but yeah. the, the the I mean, the very short stories. Mm-hmm. And once you sort of figure out, oh, it's going kind of one idea, and it's often has a twist to it. It also had a David Foster Wallace vibe to it, and he did really experimental stuff, yeah. right? Well, but, it, yes. but 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 yeah. but some of like the recursive discussions and uh, recursive, I think, is a positive word um, that you have in there had the similar vibe.
2: Well, that would be wonderful if that yeah. was the case. I would be flattered and pleased if that was the case. But that said, it's like, you know, even if you say that and that's a compliment, you intend as a compliment, He was there was a period in my life when he was my favorite writer, you know, and yet you never want to be compared to anyone. It's always negative in your mind because uh, when someone says like, oh, he's like this person or he always has, you know, the flavor of this individual and they're always like these canonical famous people – it's still like my goal is to do something that is only mine. Um, I've, I bet I've, I've used this line a thousand times, but like it's true. It's it's like you start a band, and someone's like, "Your band is great. You sound just like Led Zeppelin." It's like. That's a compliment if you're a Led Zeppelin tribute band. It's not a compliment if you're Greta Van Fleet or Kingdom Come or any of these other groups, you know. It's like you you don't want that to be the case. So so even though like even writers who are much better than me, like David Foster Wallace, I don't want to be like him. You're not gonna be like David Foster Wallace. Uh. It's okay. <laughs>
1: Um, no dogs. I had a Greta Van Fleet discussion this weekend with a friend, and I was talking about how they sound like a Led Zeppelin cover band, and also how for a couple of years I'd heard them and didn't realize, one, that it's a band name, not a person, and two, that they sounded like Led Zeppelin. And I was telling this to my friend, who was the hippest person I knew for a long time, who got me into Minor Thread and all the cool heart, and she had, she just lives in a world now where none of this comes to her. Hmm. So... I'm hipper than her. I don't even know if hipper counts. I just have seen Saturday Night Live, I guess, yeah. <laughs> recently. Um, you also have some some riffs in here about, um, I would call them identity politics and sort of your frustration in it. And maybe I'm conflating things, but I'll hear you talking to Bill Simmons. And it seems, and you've sort of referenced it earlier, right, being frustrated by the idea that things have to be a certain one, binary one way or another. There's a story here where it's basically two professors complaining about kids these right. days. Do you think that's a, a through line in your work that you're sort of frustrated with that part of culture?
2: I just think that you gotta have a sense of humor about this stuff too. And that's a touchy thing, right? Yeah. It's like there are some people who just do not feel it is funny to talk about any of these things without either an understanding that these are real serious things affecting real people or with a sense of outrage that this thing is, is hurting mm-hmm. our culture it's like it's it's I, I okay so this is this the ultimate privileged thing to say that I have enough distance from most of society working in my cabin that I can be amused by these things maybe it is I guess if somebody hates my book for that reason, Go ahead. There's not. There's a couple stories in there that have jokes that yes. Yeah. I mean, and and, and oh, in that other story that someone someone talks about a crazy cat lady. Oh and, yeah, and yeah.
1: The, someone corrects them as yeah. that's a gender. Yeah,
2: dumb. well, stuff like that. Yeah, because because it's so within the context of this story, what's happening is so crazy that it's like it's weird that we have to stop and work on this. Now, maybe some people would not think that was funny. I don't know. I, I you know, it's. I want my stories and want anything I write to be interesting and entertaining, you know? And at times, there are people who think there are things more important than being interesting and there are things more important than being entertaining. And there probably are, but not in my books. Since we're in edgy territory, what do you think about the
1: cancel culture and people who have been sort of demoted or kicked out of pop culture thinking
2: about trying to get back in? Well, I'm glad you brought this up yeah. because I— Okay, so are there people who are like, cancel culture is great? I even feel the people who are most involved with it, like the people who are actively doing what we're talking about, if you said, what do you think of cancel culture? They'd be like, well, it's a problem. You know, it's like—it's always like, well, this is an exception. This person is an exception. This is a, they would say um, there's a spectrum. Well, yeah, but it, I mean, it's become now this thing like with the term political correctness where nobody would be like— Political correctness is essential. Like that was something that happened when it came out of academia in the '90s, but nobody uses that term now. So, like, I mean, it would be odd for someone to say, like, "Well, I, I'm I'm really glad to see cancel culture happening." Like, did I, you see the, the Aziz I, Azari uh, yes. thing? Um, what did you think of that? Well. Um I don't love his stand-up, but that was the one I
1: liked the most, and I thought the direction was really cool, and I thought it was cool that the Velvet Underground is the theme music, and I realized
2: how old that song is now. The use of the Velvet Underground song was odd. I'll say this. The ending of the special was terrible, but— It was weird. The beginning, I thought he handled pretty well. I like that And the middle part of it, I thought was the best work he's ever done. So now, you know, and he's an interesting thing. Like, was he ever canceled, canceled? I think compared to a lot of the other people in this circle, he was not, but he certainly felt that way. And that is that's the thing. I mean He had to go be quiet for a while. Had, yes. And I thought one of the good things he talked about was that like a lot of people said to him, like, I've thought about every date I've ever been on after that happened to you. And he's like, it's good that people do that. Certainly cancel culture has done that. It has made people consider is there anything I have done or could do that could end my career? And or by the way, it just had me being a shitty person to someone else that I didn't realize at the time, and now that I reflect on it, I should well, think about it. Yeah, but those things now are are not that separate because right. there there was a time I think not long ago where somebody thought what happens in my private life is a separate thing. Like I can the person I am, the way I like, go oh, say. Okay. This is a while back. Johnny Carson, right? Johnny Carson had a persona that was on television that was untouchable, arguably the most important television figure of the 70s and 80s. His personal life was really you know, really troubling, right? But there was never a possibility that those things were going to interact. Now, even I think a private citizen, like not Johnny Carson, like somebody who works at a bank, yep. uh, knows that— the only private life they have is if they're in a room by themselves. That is the only privacy that we have now to be in the bathroom or to, to like the, to be like in a vault. there is without a screen with, without yeah with it's the only time you know um, even like a, a, you know or, or the thoughts you have inside your skull. Even a conversation now untaped, unpublicized uh, has a secondary meaning to somebody who says, I have a problem with that, and I'm going to let people know. So I, I don't know if there is a, a separation. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: th- no. the, the truth is I, I think most people who work at banks aren't aren't likely to get in trouble unless they're horrible well, people who do things yeah, over, and I, over and over I and mean, over. That, well, that's
2: with all of these cases. But the Aziz Ansari like, thing yes. was,
1: was a thing because it was like, well, he's – he wasn't an employee. They were just on a date. If you're of a
2: certain age, you go, yeah. that's a bad date. That's not a thing you litigate. I mean, almost every – all the uh, all the other – you know, where you're looking at, like, Louis C. K And Ryan right. Adams and all these things. It's like there isn't a lot of uh, – let's – what are both sides? Like yeah. it's, that doesn't seem to be part of it, you know? And there has not – as far as I can tell, maybe you might – you follow this probably more than I do. Like has there been example of where such a thing was attempted and it was totally wrong? Because if the, that's the, a. You where know, the, the, uh, the accusation is oh, not even true.
1: I don't know. That it no, wasn't I like, don't yeah. know. I have. It do, I, it doesn't that's seem that's like everyone's it. fear, right? Is well, like, well, because... someone's going to get taken down by this thing and then it turns out it'll be like it's the Salem witch trial,
2: et cetera? Well, it's not just that. It's the fear on one side. It's also the fear on the other side. Because the first time that happens, a lot of the valid complaints are going to be questioned in a different way. That was a little bit of a no. thing with the shitty men list
1: where I don't know if anyone sort of felt rightly that their career was oh, aligned the because no, they were yeah, on there. In part because they
2: don't want to raise their hand and go, I'm on the list. Exactly. And this happened to me. Yeah, because you had to look for it to see it. Yeah. You know, so it would be, you know, I, I, I would guess a lot of the guys who were on, I, I don't know, actually. I don't know any, I'm trying to think of, I, I don't know. This has been two white guys talking about the Exactly. exactly. It's like, I just, sometimes people ask me, like, why I'm not on Twitter, yeah. you know? And... Like, why don't I uh, – it's, it's, for some reason, they think, like, well, this is something I would be into. It's like – in a way, I kind of think Twitter is for people who feel like they are not being heard in any other way. And, like, I don't feel that way at all. I've been overheard. Like, I, I, I don't feel in any way possible my ideas and views and thoughts have not been expressed in the culture. I don't – you know, it's – too much. I feel quite connected to you, and it's solely through listening to Bill Simmons' podcast. Oh, I just, it's, you know, I, I don't need another venue. You know,
1: I went, I went looking for other stuff you've done oh. um, recently. I found a piece on space rock mm-hmm. for, uh, I guess whatever the MIT magazine yeah. is
2: called. Have you anything else that I'm missing recently? No, I mean, yeah. I think previous to that the last thing I had published was. Like the ranking of the Van Halen songs for Vulture. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, I mean, I was thinking of the space rock piece. It's talking about how, how the idea of space influenced a certain
1: kind of music uh-huh. and David Bowie for a while. And then I was thinking—and how everyone sort of had the same conception of space for about 20 years, and now no one cares about it. And then I was thinking, I think that's kind of like the internet. Like there's a Tron up through maybe Wreck-It Ralph, and everyone there's a one idea of like— The internet is this alternate world, but we all—there's people in it, and we can sort of illustrate it that way. William Gibson, right? And then I just think we're going to reach—probably have reached the point already, where we just don't. There's no no one wondering what the internet is like, in part because we can see it.
2: Well, you know, and you see things like, you know, incremental changes. For a very long time, in a movie or a television show, if there was an adult, especially an adult male, playing video games— it was a signifier that they're kind of a goof off slacker nothing nobody it's like they're they're living in this in this loser yeah and the, like they're immature they yeah. and now it would be weird to do that in a way because it would be odd every adult now who's in their who's 50 or whatever played video games at some point in their life and it's clear to me that that you know, like, we say you follow the NBA or whatever, it's like all those guys, it's like you ask what their hobbies are, it's always playing video games. So that signifier of video – the, the signifier of video games used to have these two meanings. If it was a guy, it was like they're still a child. If it was a girl, it was like, oh, she's – she's yeah. well, like what the guy's like. It's like – now, there's just something everybody – Did you see the last Avengers movie? I did not. So there's a
1: scene there where, where Thor mm-hmm. has gone to pot and he's he's – in a, in a, he's
2: smoking pot
1: or he's just like, he's, his he's life got, is got a, pot. he's got a big belly no, okay. and he's drinking and then he's playing, I guess, Fortnite or something. No, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's the joke. My kids really <laughs> like that a lot. I do have to ask you one sports question before I let you go. Okay. We were talking outside about the NBA and free agency and who covers it. I'm curious what you think of from a labor perspective about this idea that the players now either have more power than ever because they've been— either they're literally free agents, or in Kawhi Leonard's case, he was able to engineer this a trade of another player. And whether you think that's true that they have more power than ever, and if you think that's a good or
2: bad thing. Well, okay. In the short term, I think it was definitely good. I think that the— uh,
0: I'm a basketball fan.
2: Yes. I mean, now if this happened every single offseason, it might be like, this is silly now. But, like, happening once, it was almost like the world had a fantasy basketball draft. Like, I'm very excited about the NBA season starting. I also—I just— uh, having played fantasy sports for 25 years, I've never been in a league that would have allowed some of these moves to happen. The commissioner, mm-hmm. no, we can't allow this. It's, it's like, it's just crazy how it's going. Now, do the players have more power? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would say that there are a handful of players in the league who probably have more real sway than Adam Silver, if, if it really came down to it, and, and some situation, like the Donald Sterling situation, if if uh, I think the players would... You know, we yeah. refuse to play for this person, yes. he must um, go. One thing that's odd about sports writing now, particularly about young sports writers, I guess this will be the thing I'll complain about and people will be like, ah, but it's like a lot of young sports writers are very interested in the idea of writing about unions and labor, and they look at... Pro sports and even college sports, you no know, differently than they would have looked at, say, a coal mining union in the 19th century or something, you know, when unions meant a different thing. Like to, to look at the NBA players or the NFL players or the or Major League Baseball players, it's a, it's a very, it's a very rarefied thing, right? The reason these guys are able to make as much money, and the reason the owners are able to make as much money, which is of course many exponentially times more, is The popularity of the game, as a like, people want to see this, right? So, I do think that there should be a little more thoughtfulness about what is good for basketball itself? What is good for football itself? I feel like, you know, like— and Like, still, what does it mean that everyone has left Oklahoma City? Yeah, and it, it's, If you're an Oklahoma City fan. Like, in theory, you have all these assets and you can make another
1: team, but everyone well, wanted and, to leave.
2: And then, you know, there's always—it's like, you know, we, we, we— you're supposed to always— Look at say the, you know the the players as you know like it would be great if this was a more of a socialist operation where the players who really are the league were making as much as yeah. everybody else. But then like say like you know like like Zion gets hurt in the Duke game and you see people who are pretty much like suddenly they're like and like Randian objectivists like he should try to maximize his money immediately. He shouldn't have even played in high school. He should have always like actually, should, I'm on their yeah, side. Uh, well, but it's it, it, it Cause can't because college, college sports. Yeah, you can't you can't be both. You can't be that these individuals need to look to maximize their value in the most singular way and then also say like, but it would be better if this was a more shared operation where everyone – was." Sh-. it's like it's one or the other, right? We're just getting nothing in
1: college, right? And they They're, bear all the risk. And if he blows out his knee for real and can't ever play in the pros, then he's done and he's made no money. And Duke's made all the money and the NCAA's made all the money. Sure, and that's a real Sure, sure, sure.
2: But it, it's – being able to go to college for free – is not maybe equal to what he could make if he goes near, the yeah. but it's not nothing. Well, it's then fine, and just
1: then codify um, that and say, me, here we're going to give you credits, and you'll yeah. you can go wherever you want. And if, by the way, if you can't actually attend classes at Duke, well, you can go wherever. I mean, I'd be fine if they were just upfront about that. And okay, said, here's the here's the contract. So what what
2: do we do about collegiate crew? What do we do about volleyball? all these sports where there you know does a guy who uh you know he's the sixth man at a, a division 2 college in basketball though so it's you know it's yeah. Look, well, that kid can make money what about the kid who does some minor sport at the division 1 level they're, neither one of them is going anywhere after college yeah and they're not making any so money they for get the, paid the school
1: no, yeah sure i mean the point is there's a, well, but, there's two sports that make all the money mhm and where where all the value is it's it's all completely distorted, right? And there's a handful of those kids that are gonna that are gonna make a lot of money and different, right? Basketball is different than football, you have guaranteed contracts, all of that. But there's a huge imbalance and where they're making and, and you can argue that they're supporting the crew kid and, and the other kids. Um, but it's it's just Patently unfair, and and also the idea that they're student athletes is mostly bogus. Oh, so There's a lot of so problems. Just, no just, like, I just if it was honest and just said, look, this is the prof- semi-professional team that the University of Wisconsin is fielding, and everyone here is going to make at minimum this much money, and they're minimally going to have a four-year uh, college career guarantee, or you know, they can go well, to so school would, guaranteed. So would
2: would the players at Duke make more money than the players at Fresno? Maybe. See that seems odd to me. I mean, there's a lot of things. For a while, the the Olympic model was always talked about. It's like, well, the guys can make whatever they make outside of this, yeah. and that would be fine. But then you know what's going to happen. Some guy in Austin, Texas, is like, "Hey, I got a car dealership. I'm going to have this player run his podcast out of my car dealership. I'm going to pay him two million dollars a year. It's it's going to it's going to distort this thing of college sports, which." As problematic as it is, is part of this thing I'm talking about. What's good about basketball or football or these things in general, right? And if – I I think that having a robust, vibrant college sports world is the best thing for these professional leagues because it's the best thing for sports in Have general. Have you heard of
1: Overtime?
2: okay we had this guy who runs overtime dan porter in here oh no i thought you meant Lila. no 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 no, not the concept so it's it's it's
1: aimed at it's it's the idea is is they discover Hmm. zion williamson and a handful of other guys like there's a white kid who now plays i think for georgetown who can dunk and they treat them like superstars they follow their every move and they show off their highlights and because they're high school kids they literally can't get compensation so they're able to build this little business based around these kids who can no way get any money. Um, In theory, they're helping them build their profile, et cetera. But the only way they're doing that is if they are becoming professional athletes, which they can't do for several years.
2: So it's pure exploitation. And just the, I mean, it's the amount of money that's making, I mean, I guess is what a critic of capitalism would say, like, this is the end result of this. Like, the money is so great now. Part of the reason this player movement is happening is, you know, before LeBron— Went to the heat. If you recall back then, the argument was: is he's going to stay in Cleveland? They can pay him more. Okay, no player is going to leave money on the table. But these numbers are so big now; it might be 148 million against 141 million. Yeah. Well, that's like a negligible amount of money. Like Kawhi so, Leonard will get paid yeah, less in LA than he um, would have in Canada. You know, and just it's like the the amount of money that's involved here. It's This conversation has always existed, but it does seem crazier now. Like it seems to me, like one thing that college sports—there's no reason that a college kid who goes to a university should have to pay money for a ticket to see the football team play. Like if if you go to Penn State, you should be able to go to the games Mm -hmm. for free. The tickets in general of everything should. Like I would, I would rather see that kind of distribution. Yeah. So you're kind of socialist. Well, I guess Isn't everyone. I mean, everyone's
1: <laughs> kind of everybody, right? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Can we leave it there? Sure. Let's let's promote your book one more time. Okay. Raised in Captivity. You can go buy it now. You should go buy it now. It's Chuck Klosterman's fictional nonfiction. Chuck, this is great. In person. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, guys. Recode Media is produced by Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. Joel Robbie is our editor. Thank you, Joel. If you like this episode, which means you're still listening to it right now, you should tell someone else about it. Thank you. See you next week.